Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that shines a light on all the great writing that might have fallen through the cracks. So today I'm excited to just hang out with you guys in this little mini episode and give some thoughts about the television adaptation of Castle Rock. Many moons ago, I um, voiced a couple thoughts about the adaptations of Mr. Mercedes and The Outsider, and I wanted to touch a little bit more on Castle Rock because I don't think I gave it as much time as I would have liked. So now that I'm finishing up Just After Sunset, which is our next short story collection we're going to be discussing on the podcast, I was just thinking about Castle Rock, mostly wondering if they are going to do a season three, but I wanted to talk about the first two seasons. And uh, what's a little unique is I think I'm going to approach this a little differently than some of the other podcasts out there. There are some fantastic Stephen King podcasts out there that really do episode by episode recaps. So I'm sure if you are very curious about Castle Rock or you've already watched the show already, um, you've probably investigated those and received quite a lovely helping of very Uh, closely watched commentary and footage and all that good stuff, but I'm kind of approaching it as in a middle, as a middleman kind of way, mostly because I'm going to report on what I feel is working, what maybe isn't working, slash what I liked and I just felt or and what I felt wasn't really doing good. Um, so for in regards to that, I'm one of the viewers who I would consider myself middle of the road. Um, for example, you have the hardcore people who really analyzed frame by frame, really connected it to the Stephen King universe, basically went pretty far down the rabbit hole with their analysis. I'm a little bit middle ground where I've read a few of the Stephen King novels explored in the television show, but not all of them. So I'm mostly looking at it from a storytelling perspective and a television viewer. Um, And then I'm also adding the small knowledge I have about the novels that they're exploring. So I'm just going to kind of talk about that. So I'm not a hardcore nerding out session here. Um, I'm not going to really engage in that. Um, I think the episode by episode footage do does a really great job with that. But um, at present, I'm just going to wade into the pool with my thoughts as 50% a general TV viewer of just, is this a decent television show? And then 50%, okay, I'm pretty decently versed in the Stephen King universe, so my thoughts on that. So that's slightly unique, I, I think, in terms of some of the other approaches to the show. So this is a little bit of like a, uh, a middle ground going in. So with season one of the show, I uh, some of the things that I really liked firstly is the filming location I think that wherever they filmed in Massachusetts I believe is totally believable as a Castle Rock Maine location I loved the setting so much it was really really capturing the the spooky vibe but just the small town Maine vibe or the New England vibe that um, Stephen King thoroughly explores in all of his books 
So I really enjoyed that. If you guys haven't seen the uh, newest It uh, films released in 2017 and 2019, that's another one, The Town of Derry, that they created, equally fantastic. I loved the filming location, the sets, everything. I felt it was absolutely 100% Derry, Maine. And so I really enjoyed the, the filming. And so the, the Castle Rock location, uh, really came to life for me. So if you uh, have read Stephen King before, I definitely recommend watching this first season just to kind of get in this this very thick um, location spell that they cast on you with Castle Rock. Um, with that, uh, it's really nice to see the kind of proximity because a hop skip from Castle Rock is Shawshank Prison. And of course, Shawshank is iconic and infamous, mostly for the Shawshank Redemption, um, which is from the short story uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And then, um, but it, to have it really be the first location where some stuff starts to go down is pretty cool. It definitely hooks the, the, the viewer pretty quickly, at least it did for me. So we have Warden Lacey who's at Lake Castle Rock um, in some of the first few minutes of the show and then uh, we find out that he's uh, the warden of Shawshank, which is pretty cool. Um, so some of the the king universe that they explore right off the bat is really really fun to dive into. I think even if you haven't read a Stephen King novel before or at least you know seen the Shawshank Redemption or the Green Mile, I think Shawshank is just one of those iconic places. Um, what pops up pretty quickly after that, what I also enjoy, is just the pop-ups of Stephen King universe, of course, with, um, I think someone's reading a newspaper and it says, violent dog attack, so Lil Cujo comes onto the scene, that killer St. Bernard, also very iconic, so I did enjoy those little moments um, that have classic Stephen King elements popping up, that's definitely fan service, and it's fun to see, but if you miss it, I think that it also doesn't impact your, your viewing at all, which is nice. So the location, really strong. Some of the initial storytelling, the mystery they build. What's also cool, if you have seen the latest um, It 1 and 2, uh, Bill Skarsgård is the actor who portrays Pennywise. I think he did an amazing job. Nobody can ever touch Tim Curry's performance in the 1990 miniseries of It, which many millions of us have seen and for were forever traumatized by. I know I was. I was way too little of a child to have seen that and uh, the the footage that I did see sort of is burned into my memory forever forever um, so Tim Curry is iconic as Pennywise but Bill Skarsgård did a great job so it was really cool to see him in this show in a very mysterious role where he's looking all kinds of spooky and shows up and isn't speaking and only says one person's name which is Henry Deaver so the story is super mysterious in these first few episodes. I believe the other um, Stephen King fan service is the character of Alan Pangborn, which I believe is the sheriff. 
I have not read the novel that he is associated with. I believe it's Needful Things. I could be wrong, so I'm not sure if his character or the depiction of his character is working or what's going on with that, so you can definitely let me know um, if you felt that was a cool adaptation of his character. Uh, so the mystery of the first few episodes very cool they also set the tone for making it creepy and a little violent there's definitely some some gore uh inserted here pretty quickly definite spookiness and all around a little bit twilight zone creep creepy feel um so that sets the tone really nicely um in addition to the, sort of the mystery vibe i think what's working is the the kind of let's see how do I put this <laughs> so season one I I guess it's probably a good way to segue into maybe what's not working you you know it's a little tricky when you're having a trouble forming sentences about it when it's a little clunky so what I feel is a little challenging in the first season is in the middle of the episodes we've got quite a stockpile of mystery and there there have been some key moments that have happened in the series that are um really head scratcher and then middle of the season we seem to have kind of a clogged sink effect happening where uh everything's very very unclear and there's a lot of questions being raised also um what also happened with that clogged sink effect I noticed in the narrative, and this might be just because they're trying to answer the questions toward the end of the season, but it gave me that vibe similar to, if you guys remember that show Lost on ABC, that was, a, oh man, those were the days. <laughs> Lost was a fun one, but I'm one who, when the show of Lost ended, I hated it and I was glad it ended. I really was mostly because I just detected a lot of irresponsibility from the writers so stay with me here don't click off yet I know there's some passionate lost fans out there who probably hate my guts right now and despise me but hear me out if you guys remember the only reason I'm saying negative things about lost is because um, I remember reading in an entertainment weekly article after the show had ended about the the millions of questions that the writers presented to the viewers there was like the polar bear there was all sorts of very bizarre things that happened in the show and they asked the writers of the show like what about all these unanswered questions and I believe it's a direct quote in the Entertainment Weekly article where they said we were kind of just hoping that people would let go of that we were kind of just hoping that they would forget about that I was uh, a little peeved, my friends, mostly because I think as a writer, it's your responsibility to honor your viewers and honor the people who are putting their time and energy into your programming. Um, I don't really enjoy, you know, lots of uh, red herrings are one thing, but lots of dead end trails, like consistent dead end trails, that's just unfair. And so I was getting that vibe a little bit like irresponsible uh, writing from aka like the lost uh, television series where they were just creating these you know meandering pathways for the viewer to think about and then they didn't mean anything at all I don't feel that's exactly what happened but I got that 
vibe. Um, in addition to that distrusting writing vibe I got, um, I think that the show lost a little bit of momentum. It slowed down a little bit to where middle of the episode, I'm watching with my boyfriend who has not read Stephen King at all, and we're kind of looking at each other like, I'm a little bored. Are you bored? You know, and I didn't want to be bored. It's supposed to be Stephen King. We're supposed to be, you know, thrill ride, buckled in, you know, getting creeped out, you know, un um, decoding a mystery, all the things. It, the momentum slowed quite a bit because they started, um, I think, unearthing these very perplexing plots and the, it was raising a lot of questions. So there was a little bit of lost momentum and a lot of questions in season one. And I also felt based on the ending of season one, which I will not discuss, so we are going to have a spoiler-free investigation here, I, I got that uncomfortable vibe with, are these writers going to, are they going to honor my, my, uh, curiosity here or am I going to be left hanging? And I got that little, I guess, I think Lost might have traumatized me a little bit, guys, but I, I, I genuinely think I was. I mean, after what, seven seasons and we got that ending and we got these unanswered, ugh, I, yeah, bad memories. Ergo, I think that I was a little concerned that there was going to be some uh, big potholes left for the viewer. Uh, and then there was definitely a lot of questions after season one. However, to recap what I liked, uh, fantastic sort of plotting uh, of the Stephen King elements, super fun. I enjoyed the mystery. I really enjoyed the setting quite a bit. That was the most fun for me. And I was at the end, albeit slightly confused at the end of season one, in which, as I mentioned previously, there are dozens of fantastic podcasts to break down the very, very strange story, guys. So if you do watch season one and you're just ridiculously confused, um, those podcasts will be a fantastic help. Uh, they, they helped me a great deal to where I do have an appreciation for the actual story, but I felt it might have been tightened up a little bit. I think we might have maintained that sharper focus as well as that um, pacing. I think pacing sort of uh, went downhill a little bit toward the latter half of the season. However, going into season two, thankfully that picked up quite nicely. So let's, uh, let's, um, go ahead and dive in with me as we talk about season two. I'm going to share just a couple things on that. So season two of Castle Rock, I really enjoyed much more than season one simply as a television viewer. I think the pacing was tighter, the action was more engaging, and although I did have some questions about the actual 
um, goings on, it wasn't as complex. I think season one really had some brain teasers in there with some cerebral topics, such as there was this mysterious sound called the schisma in the forest. There was interdimensional time jumps and people that weren't aging and some sort of mysterious evil. There was a lot of big head scratcher stuff. Very cool, but I just don't know if it was as engaging as when we got to season two. Season two, of course, has some power players because we have the infamous creep show that is Nurse Annie Wilkes, famous from Misery. I must be honest with everyone, this is sort of come clean time. Please enter into the confessional with me, my listeners. Um, so, uh, yours truly, Kim C, is a little bit of a fraidy cat when it comes to the novel of misery. Um, well, before I, before I reveal my deep dark secret, uh, when I was a little girl, my dad, I was, um, always, for, I was thankful to be raised in a reading home, and my dad was a Dean Koontz, Stephen King fan, mostly Stephen King, and he's always been a hardback lover, and I was always sort of crawling around with my toys, playing on the bookshelves, and I vividly remember being five or six years old and grabbing the all of the book covers, I would take them down and play with them and, you know, make little book towers. But my dad had a copy of Misery and it was the 80s hardcover. And there's a fantastically creepy image um, on the front cover. The cover art is a, in the background, we have Paul Sheldon in a wheelchair sort of staring out the window, completely forlorn and despondent. And then a in the foreground, we have this menacing silhouette of someone holding an axe. And I just remember being a very little girl staring at this cover. And I would always look at it all the time. I'd always take it down from the shelf, look at it, sort of trace it with my finger, and was mesmerized by what I was seeing in, in the shock of it and the curiosity and the fear and I didn't know what it was, I just knew it was a scary book. And I remember asking my dad about it and he would just tell me, oh, it's a real scary book. So fast forward to, you know, I I always wanted to read it. I really did. But talking with other Stephen King fans, um, when I really started to, to get on the Stephen King Express here, I would ask them, about Misery, and almost every single one of them said it may very well be his best book, um, but it is also, in the same sentence, they would say, pure terror. Pure terror. Um, speaking to my father about it as an adult, he would he he read it 30 years ago and tells me how visceral some of the scenes were for him and how he even recalled me being little and him reading the novel and my mom would wake him up out of gasping night terrors and my mom would yell at him because he would have these nightmares after reading Stephen King and she would say stop reading those books you're you can't sleep and you're freaking out and so I all of this <laughs> hearing all of this has really prevented me from diving in it's almost like 
It's the door that I'm not opening yet. It's the, the locked door in the castle. I have the key, but I'm not gonna go in. I'm not gonna look into it yet. So at present, I have not yet read Misery. However, I have seen 75% of the movie in which Kathy Bates is fantastic. So I'm aware. Um, I've also read various articles about Annie Wilkes um, as a villain, as a just character. Stephen King has said how much he enjoyed writing her because she's just insane and tons of fun to write. And I also read this really great article. I believe it may have been Entertainment Weekly or maybe a different publication, maybe Interview or W, where they uh, were talking about how misery sort of was coinciding with Stephen King's addiction um, and codependency on cocaine, and he likened Annie Wilkes to cocaine and how much of an evil, all-consuming, haunting presence she is very much like cocaine. So I found that really fascinating. So every time Annie Wilkes sort of comes into the frame, I, I have that in mind and I also have all of this history in my life about, I just can't guys, I just can't. So I know I eventually I really would like to read it and I know in my lifetime I will but I think that I'm terrified to do so I truly am terrified to read it I'm very terrified to read about you know suffering and torture and just unrelenting psychotic uh, um, pain disbursement However, maybe uh, maybe as the pod continues, we can get a group of listeners together and we'll do a little mini book club. We'll just, we'll just power through. We're going to read it together. I'm going to have your encouragement and we're going to dive in and we'll uh, swim these dark waters together because if I'm with you guys, I can do it. Um, we'll freak out together. Maybe we'll do sort of a, every five chapters, we'll have a catharsis corner and we'll break it down because um, <laughs> I'm scared to death, guys. Um, I'm truly scared to death to read Misery and therefore haven't done it yet. So hopefully I still have some sort of credibility with you guys. I know that it's sort of essential. It's essential canon for Stephen King. I promise I will get there in time. I will get there in my lifetime for sure. But I'm, I'm, I'm too fragile. <laughs> at this present time to do it alone. So um, that's a little bit of a tangent, but we had to have a confessional. I had to be upfront with you guys before we go forward. So back on track to season two of Castle Rock, where we have a young Annie Wilkes and this uh, red-haired teenage girl who we find out is her daughter. And so they sort of have a crash landing in Castle Rock almost literally where they're kind of stuck for a little bit and we get to see Annie Wilkes in all of her strangeness. I believe that a lot of viewers were kind of hot and cold about Annie Wilkes being featured in the show mostly because I 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the actual novel of Misery, she's middle-aged. She's maybe 45, 50-ish. So this is a very much younger um, Annie Wilkes, played by Lizzie Kaplan, who I think did a really fantastic job, actually. She's terrific. And so I guess I was just wondering, uh, the time, the space-time continuum of that. So I wonder why they made her so young. Um, just curious about that, but it worked. I was able to suspend, you know, all of my hang-ups or all of my questions and kind of just enjoy her performance. So what's interesting about Stephen, or pardon me, <laughs> Stephen King, what's interesting about season two is I feel we have a lot more going on plot-wise. Not only do we have Annie Wilkes and her daughter, but we have the introduction of the Marston house in the city of Jerusalem's Lot, which is infamous for Salem's Lot, aka Vampire Town. That one I have read, and that one is a ton of fun, guys. That one is such a fun book. Another ensemble cast where uh, Stephen King just brings the town of Jerusalem's Lot to life. You get to know everybody, and then there's this uh, vampire Mr. Barlow who uh, wreaks havoc, and it's a perfect Halloween book, by the way, too. Like, fantastic. So, I was excited to see that we had the Marston house, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, vampires are coming, I'm ready. So we have Jerusalem's Lot, and then we have Pop Merrill, the character um, played by, I'm drawing a blank, I will come back to that, but Pop Merrill, I believe, is in Sundog and also in Needful Things, those novels. I have not yet read those yet. I know I'm losing major uh, Stephen King street cred points uh, in this episode, but um, stay with me. I promise uh, I'll get them. I, I will get these points back in time. I'm, I promise. But I, I believe that Pop Merrill and uh, his nephew, um, Ace Merrill, are pretty beloved and really enjoyed in those novels so I was happy to Tim Robbins Tim Robbins plays Pop, Pop Merrill so those are pretty prominent characters in the novels so I'm hoping that those depiction depictions went well I'm not sure I believe that Ace Merrill is a little bit of a sort of bully slash villain in the novels so um, it seemed like that's what they were going for in this adaptation but what was also unique is they have this sort of international um, twist where there's a huge Somali influence in the town of Salem's Lot and there are two siblings, uh, Nadia and Abdi, who are Somali refugees that have been raised by Pop Merrill and so there was that was really cool. I really liked it. It was different um, and kind of added another layer of drama and tension and um, very current uh, to to the show. So I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if if many others did, I but I felt it worked. So there's a lot going on. We got a lot of characters, but the pacing is really strong. And uh, uh, Salem's Lot, also very cool. It's so close in proximity to Castle Rock, so it still maintains the same kind of really neat small town um, New England vibe. It just makes me want to go to New England so bad. I've I've hopped around a few places but didn't really get to explore outside of the big cities and I really want to go so bad now. I just it's super charming. So 
we've got a lot more momentum in season two. So as a general TV show viewer, I think if you knew nothing about Stephen King, you would probably still be intrigued by season two. Um, the What I didn't like about season two, what I was a little sort of bummed about was they decided to not go the vampire route with the um, Salem's Lot branch there. The Marston House was, of course, the epicenter of the trans transformation of sorts. However, no vampires, and I was a little saddened by that. I, I think that I understand that maybe they just didn't want to do it. They're just like, vampires are so overdone, but in my heart, vampires are the best. They're just, they're always welcome, I think. I think True Blood's been over for quite some time. We need some vampires. We need, we need them. We always need vampires. They're great. And uh, the vampires in Salem's Lot were super cool. So I think that I, if they didn't really want to do the whole special effects and the teeth and the blood, that's totally fine. But you could have hinted at it. You could have like hinted, like we could have seen some silhouettes of some teeth and some blood on the floor and then the mystery would have been in the viewer and then you could have saved some budget on that. Like we didn't have to have bloodbath action scenes. They would have been cool, but like I, I really wish that maybe they wouldn't have skipped it all together. I don't want to give too much away. There's a little bit of sort of death slash rebirth happening um, with the epicenter of the Marston house, much like in Salem's Lot. However, it's uh, not not revealing too, too much, but it's in the vein. It's down the alley of zombie, in my opinion. In my opinion. I might be wrong. I'm not super well-versed in some of my monsters, but that's kind of my idea. Is that a little bit zombie-esque? Not sure. Um, definitely better looking zombies than what we're used to, but zombie-esque. So... As far as season two, um, much more intriguing to watch. Annie Wilkes' story, very cool. Um, and then toward the Marston House, Salem's Lot thing, uh, I enjoyed it. I just, oh man, the vampires. So let me go ahead and let's sort of uh, put all of this, these thoughts through the little strainer and let's uh, sort of drip out my thoughts on season one and season two and uh, if I think you should take a look at them. Okay guys, thank you for staying with me. So my suggestions in regards to diving into the Stephen King TV adaptations, if you go back to my episode two, I do talk about The Outsider on HBO and the AT&T network, which is called Audience, I believe, the three-part series of Mr. Mercedes. Those are fantastic adaptations, and so I think if you are genu generally interested in maybe watching a Stephen King series, I do recommend maybe starting with those 
first. However, if the entire um, sort of mixed board game pieces of Stephen King lore and novel content are intriguing, this is slightly controversial, but I was thinking about it and I really think it's possible. I would start with Castle Rock Season 2 first. I know that seems totally whack because who watches a show season two first? However, I really feel they're operating pretty independently for the most part. The hints at season two within season one are very, very slight. And what is nice is some of the, some, not all, but some of the little big plot questions are kind of answered in season two just slightly. And so I think if you're wanting something to not bore you slash confuse you, start with season two first. You'll get the Stephen King vibe right away. You'll be not only in Castle Rock, but you'll also be in uh, Salem's Lot. So many viewers have probably read Salem's Lot due to the fact that it's one of Stephen's first ones. It's a 70s one. It's classic and it's a golden oldie. So, and then of course, Misery and Annie Wilkes, super duper famous. So I recommend if you want to be bold, uh, start with season two. Uh, start with season two and see if you like it, see if you enjoy it, and then I think season two will provide you enough momentum and curiosity to go into season one. Season one is starts off wicked cool, lots of questions, lots of strangeness, but I swear by episode five I was not only nodding off, I was just bored and had too many questions and I don't like it. I don't know if it's working in a show when the audience is juggling too many question marks in their mind and then they're not even really paying attention to the action on screen because they're they're thinking about what happened 10 minutes earlier and trying to connect the dots and at least that's what happens to me sometimes. So I know that seems really radical and very, very bold, but... I, I want to see if anybody does it, uh, see if I'm right, because I think that had I watched season two first, I would have really been on this momentum of being in the town and and uh, seeing these Stephen King characters sort of come to life and, and then going into season one, which is a little bit of a slowdown, a little bit more slower plot positioning of pieces and bigger story concepts at work, I think I would have been able to hold on and be less bratty about it in terms of uh, wanting more action and gratification. I think I would have been a little bit more patient with it. But I think because season one lost that momentum a little bit, um, it was, you know, I was a little, little nervous for it. So I do recommend maybe watching season two first because a part of me would like to do it again myself and watch season two and then uh, follow up with season one and see if I feel any of the, the little areas of question got plugged in a little bit. So 
that's sort of my recommendation for Stephen King TV adaptations. The Outsider, Stellar, A+, please watch it immediately. Um, Mr. Mercedes, an additional Stellar, um, also watch immediately. Uh, especially if you like crime fiction or any sort of murder mystery. It's fantastic. Bill Hodges um, is so great. I highly recommend those two are knockout performances um, for me. And then uh, Castle Rock season two, just to be bold, or you know what you could do? You know what I recommend? Dip your toe in the water and watch season two, episode one, maybe episode two, see how you do. Then take a breather and watch season one, episode one, and notice, <laughs> notice the, the immense difference in tone. And maybe if you're feeling a little bit more like easing into something slower, by all means, go the traditional route and start with that deep, slow burn of a mystery and sleepy Castle Rock, um, very strange interdimensional storytelling going on. Or start off with a bang and uh, hang out with young Annie Wilkes and all of her cock-a-duty craziness. So those are my thoughts on these shows. I enjoyed all of them because there's great fun in Stephen King's stuff. Um, if you are in a more sensitive spot, they're a little violent, guys. So I, I know that all of us in quarantine are just within these past couple in the twilight zone we've all been sucked into called reality <laughs> i i've noticed i'm a little more um susceptible to to things so they are a little violent but if that's your if that's your bag right now dive in it's cool it's mysterious there's some thrilling moments there's some gory moments there's some cool characters um reminiscent of American Horror Story, if you guys were fans of that. So I recommend, I really hope they do a season three. I do. I was on board after season two. Um, I want some vampires, of course. I'm a little, you know, old school when it comes to that. I'm a huge vampire fan. Um, but does anybody know if they're doing a season three? So let me know if you've heard any rumblings. Um, other quick little uh, Stephen King news in general, I just found out for all of you uh, constant readers who have read, I believe it's 2015, I might be wrong, the novel Revival has just been picked up by Mike Flanagan to believe, I believe to be a feature film. I'm excited! Uh, that one is a fantastically cool novel, a little controversial as well. We are going to be exploring that on the podcast, my friends, because it is such an underrated title. So um, I would say we could be expecting reading Revival here in the next couple months. I've got pretty much what I want um, in line to go uh, at present. However, I can always be swayed. So Mike Flanagan directed last year's Dr. Sleep. He also directed the 10 out of 10 amazing uh, Netflix miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House, which watch that right freaking now if you haven't, you guys. It is the ultimate fantastic gothic experience, terrifying ghost story, but memorable, so well done. So he is at present the Stephen King star child, and I just want him to do all the things. So I'm thrilled that we're going to get another uh, adaptation from him. So 
check out Mike Flanagan's work if you haven't. Oh, he also did Gerald's Game, another one I'm too afraid to read. <laughs> Gerald's Game on Netflix, I've heard, also really good. Uh, that involves a lot of torture. Not quite ready for that one yet. So maybe in the podcast we might have to have like Torture Tuesday or something where we talk about all the ways in which uh, Stephen King characters are mutilated and scarred for life. So I promise I I will get around to reading some of the more gory Stephen King affairs. But for right now, we're focusing on the underrated gems. So that's really all I have about SKTV. Coming up, we have Just After Sunset. Uh, after that, we're going to head to the Florida Keys. Um, we're going to get our Kokomo on and read Duma Key. And then after that, we will most likely head into Full Dark No Stars unless you, the listeners, speak and we can maybe uh, have something else pop up. So I super appreciate you listening. Please write in at underratedsk at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, and hey, fight me on Lost. I'll let's go. Let's dance. (laughs) I'll dance with anybody. So let me know your thoughts on Lost, or pardon me, you can let me know your thoughts on Lost. I'm open, but let me know your thoughts on Castle Rock season one, season two. Let me know if you've heard if there's any season three rumblings, or if you even want a season three, or if you feel that unfortunately we may have just burned, burned up all the gas on season two. Also, what kind of Stephen King, uh, favorites would you like to see maybe featured in season three? I was thinking maybe a Firestarter? That might be a fun one. That was, I can, I'm always down for child pyromania. Absolutely. So thank you guys so much for listening. Wherever you are in the world, please take care and I'll talk to you again soon.